Hey, it's Lance, your host of yesterday's concert. Before we get this episode started, I want to take 25 seconds to tell you about my other show, Jam Journals. Jam Journals is a podcast that takes you on a journey through music history, featuring live performances from some of the most iconic concerts of all time. Each episode recounts a different concert experience through a dramatic narrative that brings the memories to life with vivid detail and emotion. Join us as we take a trip down memory lane of some of the most unforgettable concerts in recent history. Jam Journals is available everywhere you get podcasts. Yesterday's concert is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Appreciating music is about empathizing with other people's experience of life, understanding that, okay, there are types of music that make me feel a certain way, but I am a better person and I understand more when I can look at music and listen to music that I don't like, but understand why someone else does. Uh, And, you know... Welcome to Yesterday's Concert, a podcast that celebrates live music. My name is Lance Ingram, and in this episode we talk to Timothy McHenry, professor of music at Australian Catholic University. We discuss an essay he wrote entitled, Why Do We Stop Exploring New Music As We Get Older? Grab your earplugs, because Tim might rattle your taste. I'm here with Tim McHenry, a professor of music at Australian Catholic University. Tim, how are you doing today? I'm very well, and it's great to be here, Lance. Man, I'm pumped to talk to you. I love, you wrote this incredible article about exploring new music as we get older and why we don't, essentially. So before we get into that article and kind of the ramifications of that, I got a couple icebreakers because I want to get to know you a little better. Uh, So my first icebreaker for you, what was the first album you ever bought? Oh, gosh, that's taking me back. Look, it probably would have been... uh, Cats. Okay. Uh, in terms of my money, in terms of me not listening to stuff that my my father had, I remember he had all these records. I remember I had to keep treat them very carefully, make sure they were cleaned, uh, you know, positioning the stylus precisely. But it would have been <laughs> an audio cassette and it would have been Cats and it would have been having gone to see the live show and just being, you know, mind blown in terms of the spectacle. How old were you when you did that? Oh, look, I would have been seven or eight. So pretty wow. young. That's pretty advanced for a seven or eight year old. Like that's pretty good for you. Look, you know, know, uh, certainly not the first album I listened to. There there was a really great eclectic, uh, you know, Baroque music and ABBA in in equal measure. And, you know, my father learnt music at the same time I learnt music. It was a kind of a weird thing. It was something he hadn't gotten to do as a child. And so when I was learning, uh, he learned at the same time. So it was a, a really interesting way to sort of start out in music. Very cool. Okay, so next question. What's a song or album or even an artist that despite getting older, you keep going back to and wonder and just keep being blown away by their music? Uh, look, it has to be Bach. Uh, I know that's mm. almost a pat answer, um, but you know the sort of musical training I've got, I have always sought to understand music style in its proper place, that music style is not a marker of quality. Uh, Quality exists in any style, whether it's psychedelic rock, whether it's Baroque, but there are things about Bach in terms of how he uses music that are so entrancing, so absolutely addictive. I I can't help but keep coming back to it. But I search for that same kind of effect in, in other music as well, and I often find it. 
Fantastic. That was, I was expecting you to be like Aerosmith or something. That was a great, that was way better than I could have ever predicted. That was incredible. I love it. Okay. So what's a modern artist that you have fallen in love with and how'd you get turned on to them? Uh, look, um, I, I'm quite into Ben Folds and that's huh. probably narcissism on my part. The way he uses harmony, the way he thinks about songs. Um, he's not an Australian. Um, he spent some time in Adelaide, but he thinks like I do. Um, mm. Maybe that's a bit arrogant on my part, but, but you know, how he approaches songs resonates very readily with me and I, I sort of can see him. Uh, and so, look, being a sort of professional music educator, one of the great things is that I'm never standing still with my listening. I'm always finding something new and my students are constantly bringing me uh, new stuff. But you know, in terms of just a little bit of, you know, middle-aged man wanting to live in a safe space, Ben Folds. And that's not a critique of Ben at all. That was great. Okay. So last one, and we're going to basically flip that last one on the, on its head. What's a modern artist that you just don't get that somebody that you just can't connect with? Yeah. Uh, look, probably someone like Harry Styles. And it's not a, mm. not a criticism of his, him as a, as a musician or, or, or his songs. I mean, his songs are fine. It is more the sort of, cultural space around him he was in melbourne uh performing a month or two back and i i was sort of at our main train station heading in one direction and there were legions of harry styles fans heading in the other direction and as i saw the way they were dressed up the excitement i realized there's something i'm not understanding about this guy um mm. and for me and we might explore this appreciating music is, is about empathizing with other people's experience of life, understanding that, okay, mm. there are types of music that make me feel a certain way, but I am a better person and I understand more when I can look at music and listen to music that I don't like, but understand why someone else does. Uh, mm. And, you know, that's the journey I'm on with Harry Styles. So I've got a bit of listening to do there. Wow, man, I'm going to love this conversation. I can already tell. Okay, so the the first question that I really want to ask is, as I was reading your article, I kept coming back to the concept that, and I think this is overlooked oftentimes, is that music is art. It is literally no different than walking through an art gallery, looking at paintings. Music is the same equivalent. It's supposed to challenge us. Can you talk about that? Yeah, oh, for sure. The impulse to be musical is something that's absolutely essential to being human. The concept of art, I guess the way I see it, it's like the high end, the refined and, and the, the most effective application of the tools we've collectively developed as humans over, you know, millennia. And those tools include instruments, but they also include, you know, the actual materials of music that we find lying about in the acoustic principles of sound, you know, the harmonic series and all the rest of it. But as an art form, music, is it's also a drug. Mm -hmm. It's also, you know, I am both artist and drug dealer when it comes to, to music. And I don't mean that in a flippant way, but we know that music impacts our brains in a particular way. You can get addicted to particular sounds. You can use it to manage your mood. Um, and for me, particularly in terms of teaching, it's always drawing students towards the best application of an idea. Um, so we've got tools in common, like a chord progression, chord progressions that exist uh, across centuries. So you can, I actually do this with my students, you can take a chord progression like one, six, four, five, you know, for your listeners who don't know Roman numerals, uh, that's uh, the Dolly Parton song, and I will always love you. 
that uses that <laughs> chord progression. You can see that chord progression in Bach. You can see it in Mozart. You can see it in Beethoven. You can see it through the 19th century. You can see it in every style. Uh, as long as we've been using harmonic materials like that, we can see it. But the question is, how do we apply it in a way that generates an experience that isn't just a sort of copy of what's come before? And the interesting thing is you can always do that. You can always reposition the material to come up with something new. Um, you know, jumping around a bit, but this AI stuff with uh, music and this, uh, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen with AI? I have no anxieties about AI at all. You know, mm -hmm. that it'll become something that creative people adapt into their practice. So like loops mm -hmm. and that kind of thing, AI might be an additional tool we use. But what humans will always be interested in is that sort of way in which the next generation of people takes what it's been given and puts a twist on it and does something new. That's where we're at. And that's what art is, the sort of refined practice of what's come before. In your article, you talk about open-earedness. You reference that because that's the willingness to explore new music. I, I want to kind of, I feel like that's going to establish a lot of what we talk about today. So can you go go ahead and just kind of explain that term and what you use it as in the article? For sure. So uh, open-earedness is a term coined by uh, academics, not by me, but, but uh, other academics who have been studying how it is that people use music across their lifespan. And it's actually relatively easy to research that in the sense that we just have to come up with careful questions and ask a lot of people those questions. The hard thing is understanding why. Tracking the behaviour, straightforward. Understanding why is harder. And to say older people like music less would not be quite accurate um, because that's interpreting behaviour. So open-earedness is trying to understand the behaviour. The fact of the matter is at a population level, we listen to less music and we have more negative feelings about music as we get older. That we can observe. The harder thing is to understand why that's the case. Now, you know, this, this article you're talking about, it was actually quite controversial. There was a lot of people who got quite angry and said, that's not my experience. And, you know, population data never speaks to an individual's experience. Mm -hmm. It's saying in large numbers, this is the story of how humans, patterns of behavior that we demonstrate. It's not to say that a lot of individuals don't continue to love new music. I mean, I count mm -hmm. myself in that number. I, I am always listening. I'm sure you're the same. Um, and so open-earedness is simply trying to capture the behavior without explaining why, because there are a lot of potential reasons why. When I was reading your articles, I was like, well, that's not me. I'm 34 and I, I explore more music today than I did 10 years ago and definitely more than 20 years ago. But when I started digging in and kind of analyzing my own listening habits, I realized, yes, I am listening to greater quantities of diverse artists, yet when I listen to stuff on the radio, I think, oh, that's terrible. Yet, however, when I think about when I was in high school and middle school, Britney Spears, Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, all those bands, I can listen to them today and love every second of it and think it was the greatest generation ever. But when I hear Drake or whoever's on the radio now, I don't like it. Yeah, And that's when I started connecting what you're talking about in this article is that you know, I feel that in myself and the culture has changed and a part of me has stayed behind, even though I am listening to more music currently. It's it, This is probably the most interesting part of this to me is, you know, you talk about research and learning stuff, but what's the application of it? How do we help people? Um, and I, I feel there's actually lots of ways 
to help people flourish by making sure music stays part of their life. You are hitting on the exact point. And the point is that we are individuals who, you know, make choices and those choices are based on our taste. And our taste says something about us, we think. It's like our identity is tied to our music taste. So as we make choices about music, as we say, oh, I'm exploring new stuff, this new stuff, I don't like it so much, we think we're applying taste. And Mm -hmm. what I want to do is to get us collectively to think, what do we mean by taste? Because I think there is such a thing as refined taste. Um, The example I'd use is um, no criticism for some fast food outlet. Um, But if you are talking like a Michelin star restaurant, um, you know, high end fine dining and then comparing it to a a fast food joint, um, there's going to be a difference in taste. And if we genuinely believe that, no, it's just preference. There's no difference between those two. You like fine dining. I like fast food. I don't think that's true. I think there is refinement and taste and the same is true of music. Okay. But I don't think that's what most of us are doing when we hear an unfamiliar song on the radio and say, I don't like it. I don't actually think we are genuinely exercising a refined sensibility around taste. I think what we're doing is patterning something and our brains are saying, is this familiar to me? And we do it within seconds. Um, So, you know, that Drake song, for example, that you hear, if it's an unfamiliar one, how long until you actually levy that judgment? Because there's some research coming out of uh, Northern Europe that says with unfamiliar songs, we actually make a decision within two to three seconds. Wow. Two to three seconds. And, And it's not taste. It's our brain sorting and ordering it says within a few seconds i know what the instrumentation is i know what the style is i know whether it's familiar to me and i know whether based on past experiences of music whether i'm likely to like this or not Mm. and so um that's what we're up against we need to kind of be self-aware that yeah taste is a thing i I am not for a moment going to suggest that you know every pop song is equal Um, I think you need to make judgments about quality within the stylistic features. Uh, So comparing, you know, hip hop piece, which would have its own categories of excellence against a symphony is a pretty useless thing. Um, Mm -hmm. They they are trying to achieve the same thing. So you wouldn't judge them by the same criteria. So that's the interesting thing. We've got to kind of get past this notion of, oh, I am exercising my taste. You can do that. But if you're making decisions within three seconds, you're probably just making a comment about how familiar you are with something. Mm. Well, so I want I want to quote you in this next question. This is from your article: is "The heightened emotions of puberty create strong and lasting bonds of memory." When I read that, that I had to stop for a second. I was like, "That hits really hard because nostalgia has played such a heavy factor in my life and just in my music taste." I mean, even like. When I go see a classic rock legend in concert for the first time, it's a fulfillment of those years when all I listened to was classic rock in my teenage years. Yet, I I think even what you're saying in your article is, I don't think we realize how much nostalgia drives our everyday emotions in every way. For sure, for sure. So that research is coming from uh, a book called This Is Your Brain on Music by Daniel Levin, and it's a, a really, really fantastic sort of accessible piece of research but it it captures very much you know the sort of phenomenon that's at play there were sort of ideas around taste formation decades ago 
that basically said our tastes are formed as our brains mature. And mm. once our brains are mature, it's like our taste becomes fixed. But more recently, we're realizing that's no, no, that's that's not what's happening. Yeah, our brains are developing and forming. But what's actually happening is that strong emotions are more likely to cause experiences of pleasure and pain to lodge in our memory. Uh, that's not just about music. That's about any activity. Um, and uh, over time, humans tend to be averse to unpleasant experiences. So as we learn more, we choose activities where we have discretion to choose that are likely to bring us comfort and pleasure, safety, and all the rest of it. And that's pretty much what's happening at music. So our brains might form from you know birth to about 25, that kind of age, uh, younger for, for girls, I think, slightly older for guys in terms of when the brain is fully developed. Um, but it doesn't mean our music tastes need to stop developing. Given we don't have these strong emotions past puberty, we've got to be deliberate. We've got to find ways to keep habitually and deliberately connecting to new music. Why would we want to do that? I've already given one reason, and that's the empathy point, that the more music you know and understand, the more that your taste is a tool to explore new experiences that will bring you pleasure and that will help you understand people, the more effective human you're going to be. On the other side of it, as you age, if your taste starts to become something that locks you in the past and that makes you dismiss the taste of other people, particularly young people, you're going to be less effective. Anyway, I, I'm not sure I fully captured your your question there. No, no, so. you did definitely. You did, and that's and that's one thing I kind of wanted to talk about was I, I started thinking about like every night my wife before she goes to bed she watches one episode of Gilmore Girls. That's her comfort show. So what you're saying to me is kind of the music of our youth is our Gilmore Girls like comfort zone, and that's a place that we go to to disassociate. And I mean, it seems like more and more we're looking to disassociate in our real world today with everything going on and so it's kind of becoming that the nostalgia factor of music is our disassociation point yep 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 it's it's a safe and familiar space it's not challenging it doesn't take any cognitive effort um listening to new music that's unfamiliar it requires just this modicum of effort on our part which it's not a great deal of effort but in the context of busy lives lots of stress it's effort a lot of us aren't willing to make. And over time, you know, as the years click by, that lack of engagement becomes habitual. And th there's a risk to that because, um, you know, once you are actively saying, I find music unpleasant, it's possibly hard to walk back from that. Hmm. Well, so and one thing, you didn't really point this out in your article, but I, I was curious, a lot of what we're looking at is in the past. We didn't have Spotify 10 years ago. Now we have endless access to endless amounts of music. I mean, because when I was a teenager, it was CDs and cassettes. And so if you didn't have a CD or cassette, you couldn't listen to an artist. So you're, you're microscopic taste in that. Yeah. Do we expect this to change in the next 10 to 20 years? Uh, look, I mean, I don't know, but I do know this is an area where we need to learn more. We actually need to mm -hmm. deliberately research how is it that people who are native to the streaming era make meaning out of music what is the implication of the kind of algorithm suggestion 
and what's been displaced in terms of how we order music. I'll, I'll give you an example. The way I, based on how I grew up, based on, you know, records, cassettes, then CDs, you know, music shops, uh, libraries, my own sort of collection of music, uh, the concept of the mixtape, the, the way I kind of processed musical information was through the genres that were presented to me um, by physically searching, by taking recommendations, by knowing what was playing live. So there were kind of avenues of meaning that helped me navigate my musical world. I'll be honest with you. I jump on Apple Music or Spotify. I'm a little bit lost um, in the sense that it's constantly suggesting new stuff to me. Sometimes I like the new stuff, but I am an educated enough musician to know that it is feeding me stuff that is similar to things I have listened to on that platform. And I think that's dangerous because it's not developing, for me, new mechanisms of taste. It's kind of scratching an itch that it knows I have. And I wonder about the impact on younger people. Now, the good thing, the thing that I think mitigates that is people who are native to this environment have probably found ways around this. Um, so they're not just responding to the listen up next suggestion algorithm. They're probably taking recommendations from their friends. They're probably part of micro communities um, that suggest music and curate taste. But the loss of the record shop with the the person actually suggesting music mm -hmm. to you is something, it's a gap I really feel. Um, so we're going to learn more about that. It's a really interesting point. Interesting. Well, so I want to go back to the teenage years a little bit. So one thing that I, I, I wasn't clear on in your article, and I, I think you presented it clear, I think I'm just dumb. You you talk about the age 11 is kind of like a peak for accepting unfamiliar music. Mm. Is that kind of when we our open earedness starts to go down and decrease? Can you explain that part to me a little bit? It, it does. It's, it's, it's interesting. So it's to do with how biddable a child is that a, a really young child, and it's different for individuals, but in general, a young child will go along with their parents, uh, with a, a supportive family. It won't find it difficult to say to a young child, let's do this together. Because what is most important to young children is that togetherness. And so any activity, um, whether it's building a boat, whether it's painting a house, whether it's you know going to an art gallery, children that young will go along. And so open-earedness says, yeah, I'll listen to whatever music you're listening to. That's that's not a problem. We see it in learning music as well. There's a real sort of sweet spot in terms of getting kids onto an instrument. Uh, and that is sort of 7 to 11 when they've got enough cognitive development that they're not they can actually accomplish something that's valuable to them. They can make a good sound. They can do something together. They can have an outcome where they can be praised. But then there are competing demands. The time you get to 11, 12, 13, peer groups are forming. The influence of parents starts to wane. The activities that other kids are doing have a, a much more impact. So the ears start to close, but they open slightly to these sort of new social uh, dynamics that emerge for kids that age. What's fascinating with open-earedness is that it sort of closes a bit at that age and it opens a bit in late teenage years. It opens in early 20s, you know, you're past puberty, you're an adult, 
you're coming across a wider range of people as you leave school and and go into the wider world and come across a wider range of people. Sometimes you're earning money, which gives you more autonomy to go to concerts and seek out new experiences. But 25 to 29, that open-earedness at a population level declines and declines for the rest of our lives. So it's really interesting. Just to come back to the nostalgia point, we associate older people with nostalgia, but we probably overstate that case. Do you know, based on research, the age group that is most likely to say, I listen to music for nostalgic reasons, this blew me away. Early 20s. Early 20s. Wow. Yeah. And and it makes sense when you think about it because someone in their early 20s, music is still very, very important to them, but they have fundamentally shifted from childhood to adulthood. They're taking on new responsibilities. They're realizing that life is a bit of a grind. There are opportunities, but there are also responsibilities. And the promise of adulthood perhaps doesn't realize every one of their dreams. And so they're looking back to their music from when they were 13 and 14 and they're nostalgic for that time. So it's a fascinating thing to uh, kind of look at. Um, You know, nostalgia is not the leading driver of music listening. It's a big one for people over 50. It's more they don't like music at all um, in, in terms of, you know, that increasing tendency, at least on the part of some. Well, that's, I mean, it's interesting you're saying that because as I'm thinking through my own musical journey, there was a point in my early 20s where I was having a conversation with someone where I said, I feel like I'm on a three-year cycle. I feel like since I turned, like hit puberty, I was on a three-year cycle of being into certain things and then moving on. And thinking about my own musical journey, I see exactly how that lines up with what you're saying now. But one thing I, I did, like, kind of in that teenage years, one thing, the cliche came to me, like, mom, it's, it's not a phase, it's who I am. Can you talk about just kind of the the identity markers that music is for teenagers? I mean, it seems to overwhelm teenagers to the point where it, it's all they wear, it's all they talk about. And then as you get into your 20s, that completely changes. There are so many dynamics at play uh, with that. One of the fundamental hallmarks of growing up is to separate ourselves from our parents and become an autonomous, independent individual. That's successful growing up. Uh, And in order to do that, we need this separation. We actually need to, you know, gradually and hopefully in a productive and helpful way, separate ourselves from our parents and start to make our own choices and find our identity. And music is so effective at helping accomplish that. There are tiny little differences in musical style that human brains pick up on. I reckon it's got to do with language. I don't know how many people you know personally, but the average person will know at least 100 people, you know, in terms Mm -hmm. of not just their friendship group, but their family, working circles. It's a good chance that if you played a three-second snippet of the voice of one of these 100 or so people, you'd know who it was straight away. You, you, you wouldn't need to see them. You'd just hear their voice and you'd know who they were. This is a survival mechanism for human beings. You know, if, if we're uh, thousands of years ago and um, survival's a big issue, small autonomous groups, we need every sense to be able to guide us to safety. And hearing, saying, hang on, I don't know that guy, quickly our brains are primed to make that decision. And I reckon that patterns onto music, that even though if you analyse like Harry Styles' song and a U2 song. There's lots in common with the instruments. They're both male voices. They're both using the same pitch material in terms of scales 
They've both got the same rhythmic profiles, the same sort of chord progressions. The materials are not that dissimilar. Yet everyone who is familiar with this will say, ah, yeah, I can tell the difference. Hmm. Fast forward time 200 years ago and play styles and then you too, and people are going to say, well, that's just classical music. I've no idea when that's they're not they're not going to pick up the nuance, but right now our brains are primed to hear this difference. So in terms of forming an identity where difference is everything, it's difference from your parents, but it's also difference within your peer group. It was so obvious sort of 40 years ago, uh, you know, there were the people that liked ABBA and that there were the people that liked KISS. Uh, 10 mm -hmm. years before that, there were the people that liked Beatles and there were the people that liked Rolling Stone. And all these identity things follow on from what are relatively small oral differences in the music. I know, I know there might be some Stones and Beatles fans that will say, how dare you say that? But again, <laughs> analyse the chord progressions, analyse what there is. There's much more that unites those different types of music than what divides them. Um, and so we're tribal and music is a way for us to project that sort of tribal identity because we feel safe when we belong and music is a way for us to find belonging. You talked about language at the beginning of that. One thing that I've noticed as I've gotten older is lyrics matter less to me. And I'm, I'm going to ask you to play therapist for a second, basically. Like when I was a teenager, I was so emotionally connected to lyrics. I, I can remember one day driving down the street and the words were just painting the picture of what I saw in front of me as I was listening to the song. But now I don't really care about the lyrics. I don't care what they say. I care more about the melody of the vocal than I do the actual words that they're saying. What's the connection point to here to that in me aging? Is that is that yeah. just me or is that something going uh, on? No, no, I I think you're hitting on something. I think that you know maturing, going through puberty, being an adolescent comes with really intense emotions, which we need to try to make sense of. Kind of existential issues of purpose, of unrequited love, of finding your place. You know, certain phrases will really hit our emotions hard and that's what we what we you know i have this image and again i know it's not particularly modern but of the the really sweet spot in a song where someone will play it on the tape recorder i'm dating myself here press rewind and listen to that bit over and over again think of that stranger things nostalgic moment mm. i i, I you guys in America, as you you produced yeah. it for us, uh, <laughs> that, that running up that hill. I mean, it was a real nostalgia nostalgia bomb, wasn't it? Um, and there's there's words and phrases in that song that really lock us into a oh gosh, I feel it. Um, I'm 47. I'm just thinking, gosh, my back hurts. Uh, I'm <laughs> I'm not in that same space, but I really get that other people do use music that way. You know where I'm at now? It's not my back. <laughs> how words and the shapes of words and, and syllables, consonants can effectively pattern onto melody, just in terms of teaching songwriting and thinking, um, how do we take bad lyrics and make them good? It, it, not by changing them, but by effectively using music. And how can good lyrics and, you know, not be sort of wrecked by mm. melody that's too prominent or whatever. Uh, and so that's sort of where I'm at. And it's actually quite a forensic examination of the shape of words, how the words start, the shape of the vowel, how they end, uh, how that can sit effectively against a phrase. And, you know, when we talk about art, I reckon that's 
one one place it lives yeah. is that sort of really refined application of how we can get words and music working well together. You just gave me so much homework. Like uh, that's a whole like my mind is blown right now. That's a whole new perspective on listening to lyrics for me now is just reframing it in that context. Wow, that's that's awesome. Okay, so one thing, one other thing in your article before we kind of start to wrap up at the end because you gave some great tips that I want to go through. You talk about age-related changes to hearing acuity, which is the lowering tolerance for loud and yeah. high frequency. I've noticed, again, on my musical journey, I've gotten more subdued in my musical taste. I, I used to love heavy metal bands. I still do love them, but now I prefer jazz or something more often than not. Can you kind of, you know, is this it's something that's attributed to our taste palette changing or is it just an understanding, a broader understanding of music or can you explain it? I think it's a really important uh, and often neglected cause. You know, it is very easy for us to default to the notion, well, as you get old, you, you know, you, you're just not with it anymore. And I don't think that's true. I, I think every human being is with it um, in, in their own way. Um, but as we age, we lose hearing. And as we age, particularly when we're over 60, that kind of age different for different people, there are cognitive changes um, that uh, mean we slow down. Uh, the sort of consequence of that is that I mentioned before that listening to unfamiliar music takes a little bit of effort. And when cognitively we're not at as, you know, really nimble as we were, the implication of that is it costs even more. So my mother, she has uh, got dementia. It's really, really sad. But she is better in a quiet environment, as in, you know, more settled, more able to communicate in small ways. Put her in a noisy cafe and it's like shut down. It's like there's too much information. And I think that's sort of an extreme case. But I think across our lifespan, something like that is at play. We lose hearing. And our cognitive capacity declines slightly. I don't want old people to, you know, older people to be insulted by that. It's just a fundamental aspect of the human condition that our bodies age. And so the consequence of that is, yeah, we sometimes hear music and say, no, don't like it. But if we can be aware of the fact that, okay, don't like loud music so much and I need to you know, if I want to be deliberate about exploring music, I probably need to make sure the wider circumstances are right. So young people, a noisy club uh, where the music's playing in the background, dancing, people shouting to talk, that's a great environment for them. But as an older person who wants to explore new music, maybe dial down the volume, maybe find a quiet space, maybe be conscious of the fact that we have different capacities as we age. Um, I'll tell you what we have as older people, a self-awareness that helps us to, you know, make choices, um, patience, you know, determination, commitment. There's lots of things in, in, in favour of, you know, people my age and older to be able to say, okay, the hearing's not what it was. And I know that my immediate reaction might be driven by less tolerance and the issue of familiarity. But if I know about those things, I can be deliberate about curating new musical experiences. In your article, you listed several tips that are really fantastic ways to encounter new music. There's two that I want to call out that I have found work specifically well for me. And I want to get you to talk about each of them. So the first one is be curious. I want you to I want to hear what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
there are social drivers when we are adolescents mm -hmm. to engage with new music because there is a, a social benefit from being familiar because it grants you acceptance into a peer group. That driver isn't there once we're adults. We're autonomous, we're less likely to, to judge people. Uh, you, you know, it's the sort of patterns of our life change. But if there's no curiosity, if there's no sort of deliberate determination to say something along the lines of music brings pleasure, the more music I know and am familiar with, the more pleasure I can amass for myself. Uh, if you don't have that basic determination, then it's an uphill battle. If you define your musical taste in the negative, as in I hate country music or I hate hip hop, I don't personally hate either of those things. I didn't mm -hmm. become a professional musician because I hated any of it. I did it because I was fascinated with all of it. Um, but if that's you, then there's an opportunity to reframe because mm -hmm. you don't know all the country music. You don't know all the hip hop. You, you couldn't. Um, most of that is not actually taste. As I've said, it's a factor of familiarity. So curiosity is key. Um, and even if you're not curious, being willing to say, I can be a more effective person if I can understand other people. It's like, mm. there's a benefit to us. We can actually be a bit mercenary and say, hang on, what's in it for me? Um, I, I can understand these other people if, if I make the effort to listen, be patient uh, and become familiar. Wow. Okay. So the next one is the one that I think is most efficient for me is be patient and persistent. Mm. I want to hear your thoughts and then I'll, I'll share mine. Yeah, I mean, that just comes back to the three-second rule, uh, you know, mm -hmm. that if in fact we're actually, what we think is our taste is our brain's capacity to process something and give it a name, give it a label, that's X. I don't like X. Music off. Mm -hmm. Radio channel changed. Clicking forward on the, you know, to the next track on your streaming service, whatever it is. Um, the persistence allows us to recognize that what we have to do cognitively is form an awareness of new patterns of music. Um, and that will take time. It might take a lot of time. And I'd actually cluster that with some of the other tips. Seeing music live, committing, <laughs> it doesn't have to be a, a noisy club. You, you know, there are lots of different ways to, to engage with music live. So long as it's unfamiliar, you're going to form new patterns. Make a social event out of it. Listen with somebody. Take the advice of someone you know and respect. All of these things work together to sort of support the capacity of building up new levels of familiarity. Um, and look, it's not actually about saying, well, if I work hard enough one day, I too will like the music of Harry Styles. That's not the point. The point is if I am open-eared and curious and persistent, I will be deriving new pleasurable experiences and understanding more about the world mm -hmm. around me as I get older. And that's a good thing. One thing that I want to touch on that, that I've seen is music albums specifically are art pieces as a whole. Mm, yeah. I think when you take a song out of an album, you're taking a small corner out of that painting rather than ingesting the entire thing. Yeah. And so I think to me, I've listened to many albums that I did not enjoy the music but i was determined to go from the track one to track 10 whatever the final track was because it gave a greater context to the songs on the album i mean i can think yeah. of several like songs that i enjoy but when i hear them in the context of the album it exemplifies those songs i get them better and it's because the artist put a lot of 
thought or most artists do put a lot of thought into the sequencing of the albums and it's a very intentional thing no that's right and not only that but there are certain types of song that will sell well and perform in the charts there are other songs that will never do that and it's not about whether they're good or bad it's got to do with some of the choices that are made within the song you know some of the stylistic markers whether it be tempo or or the type of chord progression or the subject matter and i'm really suspicious and again i'm thinking apple music here uh of that little star that's Mm. put next to certain tracks and for me what you're describing is really important systematic, deliberate listening, where we expose ourselves to to the sort of full gamut of what the artist is trying to say in in an album. The risk of jumping straight to the singles or to those, you know, starred tracks, it's the equivalent of having a meal and eating the chips, but leaving the vegetables. Um, And it's not just a question of health. It's a question of a, a, a taste palate that is diverse, that likes a lot of things. There's an extent to which when we do that, it's like we are behaving like a really young kid who says, don't like mushrooms, don't like this, I'm only going to eat that. And if we make that habitual, then we have deliberately and systematically narrowed our musical taste. So listening to entire albums is, is a really good way to develop that persistence and to make sure we are, you know, having as broad a, you know, taste as possible because some of the greatest songs are not the ones that are singles. And the reason for that is nothing to do with um, whether they're good or bad, whether the singles are good or bad. It's the fact that certain things chart and certain things don't. And it's got to do with what's likely to have been on the radio or what is likely to generate the the most traffic. I could actually go into the detail. It has to do with where the melody sits on the voice. It's got to do with, um, uh, you you know, subject matter and how we respond to it. I'm jumping around a bit and I apologize, but you know how in a, in a, in a concert, certain things will cause an audience to stop and reflect and there'll be silence Mm. and that can be a great outcome but certain musical things will cause the audience to rise to their feet and applaud and shout with joy there are tricks that musicians know uh composers know as to how to generate those outcomes and the same thing is working with those songs that have the stars next to them so listen widely what I want to finish with is that I was listening to an interview with John Mayer and he was kind of going in on like kind of what we were talking about being persistent and diving into an artist and saying, I'm going to like this artist. And just to put personal preference on this, like I have tried to get into Radiohead for two decades now. And I just, I don't understand Radiohead despite trying Yeah. the point John Mayer made in the interview was give yourself permission not to like everything. As long as you have tried it and have, taken an honest chance at listening and liking it, sought the context of it. Everything's not for everyone. And it's okay not to like something at the end of the day. But as long as you tried, that's all that matters. That is exactly the issue. So I am not in any of what I'm saying in this article suggesting that taste isn't real. I'm Mm. saying taste can be applied at the end point of a willingness to become familiar uh, and that we shouldn't confuse that sort of initial gut reaction to taste. And, you know, once you've given something a go, two things happen. You can actually make a judgment. This isn't for me or this is for me. And secondly, whether you like it or not, you have expanded your kind of awareness of musical patterns, which means there might be some piece of music in the future that will bring you great joy because it is a combination of the sort of thing that Radiohead does with the sort of thing that you like. And you may not have liked that, 
without having formed that new, new pattern. Who knows? Um, but yeah, you're quite right. I, I don't know that in my future I am suddenly going to be, you know, dressing up as those Harry Styles young ladies did and and sort of jumping up and down. It is. I don't think that's the future. <laughs> um, but I do want to understand it better. And I think that's a good aim to have. Well, Tim, this has been an enlightening and enriching conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for sharing. Uh, I'll share the article in the show notes as well. Thank you again. I appreciate you. Thank you. No, really great to talk to you. I'm Lance Ingram, and this is Yesterday's Concert. Thanks for listening to another episode of my show. For more live music podcasting, check out our other show, Jam Journals. If you're feeling kind, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and check us out on all the social media platforms. Email us at info at yesterdaysconcert.com, or visit our website, yesterdaysconcert.com. So until next time, give us a subscribe, tell your friends, and most importantly, take care of your shoes. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.